You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm speaking to Esther Manito. She's fantastic. I saw her show Not All Men at Edinburgh this year uh, and it was one of those uh, shows that I found myself recommending to loads and loads of people, particularly men, particularly married men. She is incredibly relatable in her comedy and if you know the territory I would suggest it is even finer still. So really, really good fun talking to her and we're going to talk about whether you can be too relatable. We're going to be talking about the material that is rooted in the clash between her Middle Eastern heritage and her Essex upbringing and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, an agent's misguided warning that people don't want a comedy mum. Maybe what people want is a comedy mum. There's 15 minutes of extras available exclusively to the Insiders Club, uh, including more from Esther on her generalised anxiety disorder, and she lets us in on the very worst gig of her life. All of that is at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. For now, this is Esther Manito. Welcome to the show, Esther Manito. Hello. Lovely to have you. We've got to re- we've got to do the fake start thing. Can we just finish our lovely conversation we were having about running, running. before your mic went wonky? <laughs> you ran for the Chingford Harriers. I ran for the. Oh, Ching- I've mixed up two. Is that right? No. Chingford Harriers was that? No, was that was right? go- no, it was called um, the Orion Harriers. So yeah, they were okay. in Chingford. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You used to and run what with running them for a running club. Mean just means you meet up every week and you run, and occasionally you'll do races, and then you might like compete against other running clubs. Um, and it meant like when you did um, bigger runs and they were like, you affiliated with a club, you could then say, okay. yes, I'm affiliated with that club. And then those running points would go towards that club. Um, so I used to run um, with them, ran for East London runners for a little bit. Um, but yeah, okay. that was back in that. That was that was pre kids when I had time to do long runs. And yes. then since having kids, I probably I, I think I've only done like one half marathon, but I now just do short runs every day. OK, got it. So that when you run with an organisation, that to me starts to smell like a sport. No, it wasn't like that. It was like basically, well, the men would treat it like that. <laughs> So you'd always have the guy. So they used to have like leaders for your runs. So you do like trail runs. We used to even do like night runs with head torches through the forest. Um, Yeah. And when the women ran together, we would just be like chat, 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 all lovely. But when the guys got involved, they would always be like, I'm going to talk to you about your form. We're going to aim for times. And you'd just be like, oh, can you fuck off, Gary? Because I just want (laughs) to jog through the forest um but yeah 
So it was, it was lovely. And running is something I associate with robust mental health. I've started saying that. It's become a catchphrase on the podcast now, describing mental health as robust or less robust. You mentioned before that you were kind of, oh, I've got to keep running or I'll go mental. Yeah, just got to keep running. I don't want to misquote you. No, no, that's that's exactly the right quote. Just got to run, otherwise I go mad. Even in Edinburgh, um, I had to do exercise. I was either like, it was either a hike or a run or a swim. And then the last week was kind of like my fuck it moment. And I just didn't, I didn't really exercise that much. I was eating rubbish. And by the time I got to the end of that final week, I was like, yeah, just want to step in front of a moving car I'm like, I'm so <laughs> i noticed a, a tweet you did at the time which was something like i'm done now i'm just going to go and lie down and do nothing and then go to asda and i thought there's that's your classic estimanito take i'm exhausted i need a bit of me time but i've got responsibilities thank you that seems very you it is like that though you know like other people are like i'm not going to do anything i'm just going to chill out and i'm like fuck off i've got to go do the big shop yeah which is yeah. but then in a way you kind of relish it because it's humbling and i do think because you've got kids i do think like it we're quite lucky and that we when if we if you don't have anything and that's what edinburgh does is you come home from your gig and you're just still in that bubble and you're you can be as self-absorbed in it and you can think about it and you can analyze it whereas when you've got shit outside you come home and you've got like you've got that journey home to obsess about it and then the moment you get through the front door it's like no one cares. No one cares about your little performance. No one's interested. Yes. Get yes. the dinner on. I experienced a meta version of that this year when I was at the festival for a week, just the first week, and then I left and to do a family summer. And uh, that's completely, I mean, I've done nearly 30 Edinburgh festivals and I've never not been there when it's been happening. And what I realised was it's the, it's, there's a similar thing going on whereby... I realised that the rest of the world doesn't give a shit about Edinburgh. Yeah. Like, not just the, not my family. Yeah. They certainly don't give a shit about Edinburgh. No. But the world, the no. world at large. I always assumed that when we yeah. were all at Edinburgh, the rest of the world was fixated on it and reading the reviews and watching the stuff. There is, there's, there's nothing. They don't give it is. Choice. It's really humbling. Like, you come back from Edinburgh and you literally get off at King's Cross Station and you're like, oh, no one cares. It's, yeah. it's insane. <laughs> it's insane because you've just spent a month going... I'm can't I'm I'm pooing four times a day. I'm just racked with nerves. I'm waiting for that review to come out because when that review comes out, everyone it'll be read in Parliament. Everyone I've ever <laughs> known, my old home ec teacher, everyone's going to know that I am this. What that review says, and then you come back from Edinburgh and it's like, sorry, who are you? No one cares. It, so, yeah. which is really important. And it's that classic thing of like a parent sending you a three star review, thinking that's good. And you go, actually, the, like, initially, that's, like, quite painful. You didn't want to see it. You got excited because someone sent you a review, and then you see it. And you're like, oh, for Christ's sake. Um, but actually, the, the, deeper, the deeper meaning behind that is that the world doesn't know or care. If everyone thinks a three-star review is good, that's great. <laughs> I got, mean? It's just, I got, that's, the whole, that's the outside world. I got in trouble once for sharing my three-star reviews. Did you? Yeah. Like, in trouble with, like, management or other comments? Someone was like, don't do that. Really? <laughs> because it was my debut and they were nice reviews and I put them on my Facebook and I was like but that's my friends and family and they were saying nice things so why can't I and they were like do you want everyone to think you're having a shit in bruh and I was like I didn't know that that I didn't know I was I thought I was having a nice time (laughs) so your debut was 2019 yeah 2018 2019 2019 2019 so you're 
there are there are two kind of contextual issues before we get into the meat of it. Um, one is, did you? I don't know how old your children are. Did you become a comic when you were already a mum? Yeah, I became a comic when my daughter was two and my son was seven months. For the benefit of the listener, I'm standing and saluting Esther Benita. That is, I think that's one of, I cannot imagine doing that. I can't imagine it. And I really, really love it now. And I've said this on a couple of podcasts. I love it because now comedians are having babies. And I love it when I see broken people that I started with. And when I see them broken and they're like, how the fuck were you doing open mic nights? And, And I'm like... Thank you. That's all yes. I've ever wanted because you were all <laughs> carefree and single and having, you know, beers after gigs and stuff. And I was going home to breastfeed and get up at 4 a.m. So, yeah, <laughs> thanks for appreciating so, it. So I'm really enjoying seeing all the now my kids are like sleeping through the night and getting on with stuff. And now I'm seeing all these comics who are broken and I'm like, wah, wah. <laughs> before we before we get before we kind of pursue that line i said i said there were two things what was the other contextual issue oh the other one just to mark it for later the other one is you debuted and then the pandemic happened so you yes. have kind of grown up as a comic not begun as a comic mid pandemic that's a whole different thing but let's come back i just want to kind of mark that later on i want to come back to that I've just done my debut. It went well. I'm registered as an entity in common. Oh, shit. It's all stopped. Let's come back to that. But just to pursue first, um, how and why? I don't, This is a very uh, this is not a nuanced question by the standards of this podcast, but I do want to get into how you started comedy, particularly as someone who already had children, because that is. As you say, as you rightly say, you, you should be proud of it. That is an unbelievable uh, hill to climb to to start, and I, I say that as someone who's done stupid like, one. Well, so why then? <laughs> Just what was, don't. Were you like a frustrated comic? Were you thinking, man, I've got to do this eventually, and then it happened? What's the kind of the beginnings of, of you in comedy? No, I mean, <laughs> I've always been pretty crap at everything I do, so I wasn't a brilliant. I was a teacher. I was a teacher on maternity leave. Two kids. wasn't a great teacher. Terrible mother. Um, and then, but I did feel mentally frustrated. That's always, that was something I felt. And I think I was saying this to, um, a friend of mine, she's, she's trying to have kids at the moment. She was like, just be honest with me. What's it like? And I was like, honestly, you will never fall in love as hard as you fall in love with your children. It's insane. It's also really boring. Like when you're at home with babies, it's really boring because obviously they can't talk to you so you do go a little bit and I did feel just kind of like a bit kind of trapped in my head so I started um my friend was doing a comedy course so I was like oh, I'll go and do that with her but I never thought I'd do stand-up but I thought you know I'll do it once a week go and do the course and then um and then that's just you know something for a few weeks that gets me out the house every week but I never thought and I never told anyone I never told my husband I was like I'm just gonna go and do this like I'm just going to meet friends or I'm just you know gonna go and do a yoga class or whatever but I never told anyone I never thought in a million years I'd do stand-up and did it did the course feel or did the elements of the course which were live performing or any of it feel like a natural fit for you because one of the one of the elements about you is that you're sort of a natural it's very hard to imagine you doing something else ah that's very sweet of you um I I no because you're incompetent is what I mean. No, I'm just... <laughs> I got to sit here and pay people compliments. Do you know what I mean? But uh, uh, terrible. Yes. No, do you know what I mean like your 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 kind of um, 
your connection with an audience and your ability to speak very honestly and kind of um kind of not lightly casually but you just kind of say what you're thinking and it's funny you're one of those one of those comics oh, yeah, so very back sweet. to back to the question so was it natural which <laughs> did it feel like a natural fit um yes and no i definitely wasn't somebody I, and i still don't i'm not somebody who's confident so i'm not someone who i'm when i see people who are like yeah let's go do this let's, have a good one guys we're all going to have a great time. I'm like, who are you and what made you? Because I go to every single gig hoping that I die or the venue explodes or something happens. That... I'm hoping that you die before you, yeah. like you die I'm on the like, way so you don't have to yeah. do it. I see I'm like, please <laughs> don't make me get up on that stage. When I'm on the stage, I enjoy it, but I am not somebody who's... Um, so when I first ever performed, I, I threw up through adrenaline. Amazing. Yeah, so it's not something that was it felt like, oh, she's such a naturally confident person. But I do I do enjoy it once I'm up there, if it's going well, obviously. We've all been there where it's not going well and you're like, oh, for the love of God, make this end. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like a... It, it, it didn't feel like, oh yeah, this is just naturally me and I can just do this naturally without any any kind of work. So what, what kept you going back? Was it, is this just a description of just how boring your home life was that you would go to the... <laughs> I mean, well, say, I mean, presumably it was enjoyable, even if it wasn't a natural fit. Was the course enjoyable? Uh, yes, it was. And it felt like it was just something really different. And I think sometimes you need just something a bit scary to, to shake things up a little bit. Like, you know, family life is absolutely brilliant. And I'm really, really, really happy that I had children before I started doing comedy. Really glad because I can't imagine trying to juggle the two worlds being an established comic and then trying to, I think that that must be a really hard path to navigate for all sorts of different reasons. But, um, so I, but it, it felt like just, it just felt really exciting to go and do something that was just yours mm. and completely disconnected to home life. So that I think was the thing. And the fact that it was just, it felt really playful and just like messing around and I never thought anything would come of it. So it felt just like this fun club that I'd go and do, Something you know like that once a once a week for a, for a while. And when when was that? When what kind of year are we talking? I'm just trying to bridge the gap between that and your debut. 2016. Okay, okay. So that's pretty quick. That's pretty no messing. Starts in 2016. Debut three years later to a decent critical reception. That's quite quick. Yeah. I don't know is that, because people seem to doing... debut after five minutes now. Like when I was up, in, <laughs> yeah. when I was unless, up in... they're, unless they're tactically doing uh, what I can't remember who told me this. The forty minute referring to it as the coward's hour, <laughs> the, the tactical forty. People seem to just waltz out the womb now and get straight on stage and do a debut. And I'm like, how? How have you got things well, to say? Well, I think part of that is um, is people are cottoning on faster and faster the extent to which the industry fetishizes youth. Right. So like. Oh, if you're 18 and you and you are funny, oh my God, the vultures will circle. Like yeah. we can work this person for 40 years. This is great, you know. Um, I think I think that's maybe at the heart of it. But so tell me about the the circuit then, and kind of what was the moment when you thought actually post course I'm going to do a gig and I'm going to sign up to a thing and I've I've got something here or not not I don't mean so structurally like that. I mean kind of what was the first bit you did that you went hey this works this is reliable and 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 I enjoy doing it, and it gets a laugh, and it's me. I think, um, God, I still do bits that I did back then, 
that are still just like my go-to. Oh, if this isn't working, I'm just going to go to it. But I think anything, I just because everything I talk about is family related. And I think it was just that's how I started. I literally started off talking about babies, probably. Obviously, now I've got older children. But at the time, it was talking about babies, pregnancy, things like that. And I remember just getting a reaction from women that I was like, oh, I think because I used to when I when before I started doing comedy, I would go down like to play group and I'd say things to other mums and I could just see there was mums who would like chuckle along. And then some mums like, did she just say that out loud? And I'm like, it is funny, but no one feels comfortable saying it. And that's when I kind of cottoned on. I was like, if you say it, the mums will want to come and hear you say it because you're saying the shit that they know is socially unacceptable for them to say out loud. Yes. Um, Yes. So that's when I started to think, okay, there's a real, there's a real relationship that I can have with women my age on stage. Yes. And dads to a certain extent, if they're okay with being Yeah, for sure. I mean, your show... the show I saw at uh, Edinburgh just gone, not all hashtag not all men was there was some incredibly that's one of those that's one of your kind of superpowers I think one of your great strengths is how relatable you are and I was saying like I would recommend that show to people on the basis of like oh, it's kind of like there's loads of stuff about her and her husband that you're just it's just going to kill you because you know I'd recommend it to married friends you know I'd go this is it's just very well observed the people in the room are properly like this is it. This is my life. Did you? I think there's a bit. There's a clip of yours online where you talk about someone coming up to you after a gig and saying, "You're talking about my life." Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it isn't great when you've got a woman crying, <laughs> 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 going, "You're literally describing my life," and I'm like, "How depressing are our lives?" Yeah. But, but no. And and that's what was. That's what I kind of liked about doing my show. Hashtag not all men is that it did. It it was a lot of guys who didn't want to come. And that they had been brought there because their partners had kind of forced them to come along. But it is kind of creating that relationship with with guys in the audience. And and it's nice when also you can recognise that it isn't just an attack on men in the household. It's actually an attack on both, you know, how we've all been kind of constructed and and how our relationship with each other has been constructed and and it's actually if you step outside of it it's quite funny and ridiculous the kind of pressures that we put on ourselves in the you know in the home it's kind of um so would you say that it's kind of an attack on patriarchy but unusually it sort of it gathers the men in a little bit more so I don't I've come to this conclusion I'm I'm not a massive believer in that there's this kind of oppression um that is wielded by men and women are the victims of I think there is definitely a level of misogyny towards women but I also think that men are victim of that as well so when I see a guy who's particularly misogynistic and and I especially now when I see it you know comedians and they're doing this kind of like ego thing of being quite misogynistic it doesn't make me feel angry I genuinely feel quite sad because I think it's a really unhappy way to live your life and I don't believe it makes men particularly happy so I think it's really important which is why I wanted to address that in the show that actually it's not it's not an empowering thing for men at all I think it it makes them really unhappy inside and I think you know the more that that's addressed rather than just constantly going on about women being the victim of it it's like yes we are the victim of some unpleasant behavior but also let's start to address that this behavior comes from a very unhappy place not a happy place which we also want to aspire to to have so yeah I, I kind of started looking at it a little bit differently I think 
So this is Esther. You can tell how relatable she is, not just in terms of her material, but also as a person. She has that quality that I think she shares with someone like Jade Adams, whereby you can hear already you just in listening to that first however long of a clip that was. You probably feel like her best mate. I love that quality in people. It's great. So we're going to be finding out more from Esther. We're going to talk a little bit about growing up in Essex at the time of the Gulf War with anti-Arab rhetoric prevalent in her school. We're going to find out a bit about that. We're going to talk more about comedy. And there are 15 minutes of extra bits and bobs, including Esther on her generalised anxiety disorder, uh, all at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, where you can, of course, for the very small uh, fee of £2 a month or uh, as much as you'd like to pay it, it's entirely up to you, but everyone gets the same stuff. That flies in the face of accepted Patreon-style logic, but nonetheless, I think it is good. Um, you can get ad-free episodes, extra content from every show that has it. You get the insider Q&As that we've had as one-offs with Nish Kumar, Alfie Brown, Fern Brady, James A. Caster, as well as the incredible Self-Help for Comedians special. And I'm not really plugging anything at the moment, apart from there's a couple, there's a one particular charity gig that I'm doing, which I think would be good to promote, which is in Bristol at the Old Vic uh, on the 5th of December, Monday the 5th of December. That is for the... Uh, Great Western Air Ambulance Charity, the Gwack. I've seen now that I've written it down as Gork in my diary, but I know that it's Gwack because there was much hilarity about the pronunciation of Gwack last time. Um, so if you would like to uh, support people in need of being picked up by an air ambulance uh, who live in the Southwest, then please, and you should, I always like to support charities who can save me. That's a <laughs> big issue for me. Um, so come along to that on the 5th of December. It's at the Old Vic, which is as fine a place in which to perform stand-up comedy as any. There is something about the design of those old theatres and the Old Vic in particular, which is just an absolute joy to play. It was great last year. I'm sure it'll be great this year. Come along, um, find out tickets for that by Googling for them. All right, get over yourself. So uh, we'll hear a bit more from Esther now, and I will speak to you in just a moment in my time, but to your time for you after the interview. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I saw a review that said, um, uh, because it's got the title, hashtag not all men, you know, it's. I wondered that, like, there was that says something that might say this is going to be, and you know, like that could be interpreted as it's going to be a, a, a different type of show to the show it was. But I think that one of the one of the reviews I saw it said uh, hashtag not all men isn't the radical call to arms that the title might suggest. And I thought, well, I sort of see their point, but I think also it, you know, the title might suggest that it doesn't promise that, and also it is nuanced. Mm. 
like you're dealing with nuance and what, what I enjoyed the empathy with which you're sort of saying yeah men suffer from this as well I think yeah I think when people see hashtag not all men they might think that it's either me saying look uh, guys are really great so we all just need to shut the fuck up or that I'm going to be there and really laying into the patriarchy and I think when people kind of see it coming, they're like, oh, okay, so it's a much more gentler approach. It's like, well, it's not about being gentle, actually. It's just about seeing it for the reality that it is, that a guy who's assaulting women or being quite aggressive or misogynistic is not a guy that we need to hate. It's a guy that we need to step back and go, okay, there's something really not okay here. So Mm. what have we done to create that? Mm. It's just that kind of lighthearted bants. And I, but but that came from but that came from having a son because it's all very well being married and having a daughter and going right fuck the patriarchy and then you have a son and you go no hang on wait a minute you're going to be part of the patriarchy so I need to start to look at what impact that has on you and I don't really want to raise a, a boy and I think now it's becoming really weird with guys and I don't know if you felt the same but I feel like there's a real shift with with young guys especially in like the clubs and stuff and when you're gigging there seems to be a lot more kind of agginess with with kind of lad culture it seems to be kind of we have a little bit of a resurgence of the lad culture battling against the woke culture and so that seems to be at this clash at the at the moment so when you're when you're going and gigging you can either be gigging to very kind of woke lads who are terrified of laughing at anything and just like kind of nodding furiously or you've got these kind of aggy lads who are like oh, i can't fucking say anything anymore ah, yeah. and then getting really aggressive about it and you're like oh this is a weird dynamic yeah because then they never I know have, how to I've... react to you yes how are you navigating that uh. <laughs> 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 oh it's a hard one because it means that you've kind of got to get them on side really quickly and that can be really tough really really tough so I don't I don't know I've I've spoken to so many female comedians and so many of them are feeling it at the moment they're like yeah the heckling has gone through the roof and catcalling things that just weren't happening before the pandemic where you could kind you could kind of rest assured that you go on stage you know we had a good couple of years I think before the pandemic where things were quite calm and so you could go and go and do the clubs and you didn't really you might get the odd weird night but you didn't really get that much kind of but now it's like, oh, every gig, every gig, we're going to have, you know, a guy shouting something out and just trying to rile up his mates. And it's just like, oh, is this going to happen every single time? And so what do you what do you kind of speculate is the reasoning behind that? Is it is it pandemic related? Is it the kind of rise of, you know, chauvinist TikTok stars? Is it kind of... Oh, I've uh, heard about this. See, I don't yeah. know about popular culture because I disengage in everything, well, honestly. Well, well I, I don't really either. So this is the blind leading <laughs> no, but the blind. I'm, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really bad, honestly. I didn't even realise Nelson Mandela was dead till about four months afterwards. And I was like... It was he dead? And people are like, are you mental? Like, I, I could have I could have bypassed the Queen dying without... Honestly. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cut out until four months after, so it sounds like you still think he's alive. <laughs> That's where I thought you were going at the beginning of that sentence, like, until yesterday. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'm, I can just... So yesterday I was recording something and everyone was talking about this guy on TikTok who's kind of basically saying, like, <laughs> rape's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's no longer he's no longer on TikTok, but uh, but it t- it took a, it took an unusual an uncommon bubble of uh, national this is atrocious to actually get them to take action. There'll be loads of other people there that aren't in the spotlight as much. But he will feed off thing. hate. 
They'll all feed yeah. off hate. So surely these people don't need hate. These people just need, they just need like a little bus to go around, knock on their door, say, here's some medication. Would you like to talk to a counsellor? Because things aren't okay. Because that person isn't, like when I was hearing about the things that he was saying, I was like, okay, so he's getting the reaction. He's getting the hate. You know, he's probably getting a lot of women. Let's face it, because there is that weird relationship that a lot of younger girls have with kind of hyper-aggressive men where they feel that that kind of validates their sexiness. So he'll be getting laid. Mm-hmm. But it will come to... I mean, that's... he He's not ever going to... He's not going to sit back as a 70-year-old man and go, oh, what a lovely life I've had. Yeah, <laughs> it's a tricky... There's, I mean, there's, there's so many layers to that because, like, part of me, what I want to think is... He doesn't really mean any of that. He's and I know with that in this particular person, part of why he's so successful is he understood the algorithm very early on and went. He got he kind of motivated. He got he kind of like an he created an online club and got everyone involved to um, deliberately post clips of him saying the most deliberately outrageous things because he knew that would spike the algorithm all over the place and get him more followers. Because how old is he? I don't know. I don't know, and I don't know. I don't know too much about it, and this is why we run into the danger of people, sort of people who are uninformed. This is the this is the you know the, the big problem with podcasting. Kill him. Uninformed, no. speculating. <laughs> but my point is, I want to. I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt and go. He doesn't really mean it. Well, He's so, just playing the algorithm. And then you go. Some people are fucking horrible. They are, but it's it's through it's through um, removal of humanizing and see this is what i had with in my first show that i did crusade i kind of tried to humanize the racists and i was trying to break it down because i genuinely think if if you sat one-on-one with tommy robinson i don't think that he i think you could have a conversation i mean this is going to but i think genuinely that a, a human bond could be formed if you were for example locked in a room with him he's not going to say i cannot engage with you but i think there's a way of dehumanizing people where it just makes it so easy to kind of spout hate online spout mm. completely disconnected hate and actually the which is why it really messes with a lot of these guys heads when they have daughters because suddenly you've got this human form of the thing and then you become mm-hmm. controlling and and mean and quite cruel and you know in in how they live their lives and the men that they might have relationships with and then it fucks up so it kind of has this this knock-on effect so you're probably right it's all disconnected and that's why he's done it but um but i i just i'm not 100 percent. but the fact that he's got a huge following Mm. it's not Mm. great i wonder how many of those are female probably loads it's a bit bleak isn't it I'm, I was just maintaining a pause there so that we could get out on probably loads. Sting, move on to something else because I don't think either of us know enough about this. <laughs> but I think as it pertains to your uh, comedy and what you want to do with your comedy in Crusade, you were tackling. That's you know that's a that's a premise, isn't it? To tackle. Oh no, that's like a premise for a show. It's not just here's all my jokes. It's here we go. I want to I want to tackle a thing. So in your um, in your, not just, I don't mean to tackle a thing. I mean, you know, get into the viscera of a, a social or a political or a personal kind of experience. It's not just like, these are a load of nice fluffy jokes. Yeah, I wish. you trying to get your teeth into something. But then I, I look at other comedians and they just talk about observations about the world. And I'm like, everything I talk about always has to be to do with me. 
<laughs> yes, I'm. Well, I'm the same. I'm the same. I would love so to be able to everything. write a joke that was about yeah. nothing. Yeah. So I keep I keep trying to like test material, and I'm like, oh, what's the deal with I don't know writing LOL, and people are like, what? Shut up! And I'm like, oh, okay, back to slagging off my husband and kids. But I'm like, everything I write is so like. If it happens directly to me in relation to me, so friends, husband, children, parents, then I can write it down. I can cultivate jokes, but I'm terrible at just going, here are my observations of the world. Totally, totally. And I wish I could do that. I just want to pick myself up on saying jokes about nothing. I don't mean jokes about nothing, but I no, think no, you've, articulated, no. you've articulated exactly it. Yeah. Some people can joke about things outside their yeah, own yeah. mind no. and their no, own No, no, no. I totally, totally read you correctly. Don't worry. Totally. It's that, it is that thing just like, because I sit and watch people and I'm like, I know nothing about you. So the amount of comedians I know nothing about. And, I, and you do feel it because when you're talking about your family and especially when you start to do slightly bigger things and then people are commenting bit positively I mean when it's positive it's fine but when they're talking negatively towards you so people might write things negatively and they're like attacking you for talking about your family and you're like ah be great just to talk about other stuff yes yes it would be nice to be sort of insulated from it but I think what happens is and I, I don't know if you felt this when I started comedy like 17 18 years ago I was so naive about um about who comedians were and I just thought well we're all we're all good we're all good guys we are the good guys you guys in a non-gendered way because look we've all done that very brave thing of stepping up to a mic and you know trying to make people laugh and that's a good benevolent thing and I had no idea that no no we're simply a slice we're a representative cross-section of humanity who happened to be a bit choppy and a bit a bit confident in front of a microphone yeah so to kind of recognize that um where am I going with this Whoever the latest person is, the latest comedian that people go, oh, no, have we, have, whichever side goes, oh, no, we've lost that comedian to the other side. You, um, you end up going, well, why did you think you knew that person to begin with? Because all you got, and this is the same in, in kind of art in a wider context. I think Alistair Beckett King think- said something like, we always, you know, we, we struggle to separate the art from the artist. Why were we thinking the art has any connection to the artist anyway? Why did we think that because we liked a story or a joke or a song created by someone, that that must mean that they necessarily are the sort of person we get on with? But I think people do think that they know you. And it's weird because they think they know you. And they will, or, or when they take what you say on stage literally, and then they'll want to have the conversation with you where they're going, yeah, because you said this, which means you think that, which means you and I can bond over this fact. And I'm just like, oh, this is insane. Like, that I'm there telling a joke. Because if I was stood in the pub going, oh, my God, my husband, he's done my absolute fucking head in. He'll never, I don't know, put the toilet seat down. I wouldn't then expect someone to turn around and go, yeah, let's both run off together and get divorces from our partners. You'd be like, that's really, that's a really intense way to read that. But you will, you'll get people who just read it literally and go, right, so this was directed at me personally. And you're like, no, I was ah. speaking to a room of 2000 people. And they're like, no, you spoke to me. And now we've got this bond. And you're like, wow, that's a really intense way to read that. And you forget. This doesn't, this doesn't happen to me so much. I must not be as relatable as you. Is this the, da- is this the double-edged sword of relatability that people come up and go, you get me, man. I once had a guy, I was doing a gig and he was sat next to his wife and they're in the front row and I was outside and he comes over whilst I was outside during the interval and he went, I just noticed that me and you had a bit of, like just a little bit of eye contact. And I was like, yeah, yeah, because what? (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, yeah, because I, I tend to look at people when I'm talking to them and you were one of the hundred people that I was speaking to. And he was like, no, I just noticed that me and you had a little bit of, like, so I just didn't know whether that was like a thing. And I was like, well, unless I go on stage and stand facing the back wall, I was like, mate. And I just stood there and I genuinely don't say, I'm really sorry. And he was like, no, no, I just thought, you know, maybe if you wanted to exchange numbers, whatever. And I was like, no, no, I've, you know, I've literally just said I'm married with children. Um, but the fact that I looked at you when talking to the room uh, sent oh, you man. very clear signals. Um, maybe go back oh, to sit next to your wife. <laughs> Too relatable. Big problems. There she is. Don't making, look at people. Making eye contact with men. <laughs> I know. Like the whore that she is. Look at her. Out of the house, not wearing a bustle, <laughs> making eye contact. Um, something that someone said in a, in a review was that, and again, I'm really bad at this. I keep like quoting reviews and I never uh, name the writer, which is genuinely shocking. Um, but someone said, and, uh, and if you'd like to find out the writer, simply Google these exact words. Um, watching Esther's show made me realise how rarely you see a mum on stage discussing real life. And it makes me wonder if some comics censor this side of their lives for fear of having their identity reduced to, inverted commas, comedy mum. Do oh, you right. feel that there's a fear of you being reduced to comedy mum? Yeah, no one wants a mum. There are women, I don't think, I think there are a lot of, there's a, the, the, this industry is the most anti-mother industry and I felt it from the moment I started. I remember having conversations with an agent when I was looking to be signed in 2016 and their their reaction was, they were like, you know, do you have representation? I was so excited to have this meeting. And then they went, you have got young kids though so how well could you how far could you go in this industry and that was my first like oh wow okay and then you know don't talk about parenthood so much don't talk about parenthood so much don't talk about parenthood so much and I part of me was like okay trying to accommodate that and then part of me just went ah fuck it no there's a huge, huge audience out there. And I, I don't understand why that's not tapped into. But there is a huge, huge audience of women who have children, who are maybe single parents or in relationships. But there are women who have money, who organise social events, who will go and buy tickets. And it's a massive market and they're a fucking joy to perform to. Last Sunday, I opened for Celeste Barber. She's a... a Yes. I was chatting to a mum in the playground about that gig. I'd never heard of Celeste Barber. She's like huge online. She's I've never huge heard online. Of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Women love her. I opened for her at the London Palladium. All women, just beautiful. And I was talking to Celeste and she was just like, but the industry so rarely wants to go for the woman talking about domestic life they just don't that you know and so she built it herself and she's created this absolute phenomenon and she's just selling out these huge arenas and i'm like women buy tickets women consume um yes. and it's the same with joanne mcnally i mean i know she's not um a mum but you know you look at someone like joanne mcnally and she's just built this following of young girls who are going out and she's really honed in on that and you're like every single person has their following and i think all trying to conform to this kind of you know, I don't know, single, you know, young, it, it, it doesn't work. It's great if you are that, but you can't pretend to be that. It's it And work. it's incredibly short-sighted of a, an agent or anyone in the industry, any kind of gatekeeper type position, 
I mean, it's a, it sounds like a very 2016 thing to have said. I wonder how many people are still making that mistake now. I remember, uh, off the wall anecdote here, I was at circus school in 1996. That's a sentence you don't we often all, hear. In it. <laughs> we were all doing, we were doing neutral mask, right? Which is what, that's the, one of the build-up kind of mask work that then becomes physical theatre and what have you. And you wear, you wear this neutral mask, completely covers your face with nothing, totally blank. And it, what it does is it makes your physicality incredibly apparent. And I remember, as we were doing it, there were a couple of um, performers there who were punks. There's a guy covered in tattoos, kind of Mohican and stuff. And the circus, the, the physical theatre teacher used to get really frustrated with them, going, you need to be able to show a neutral body. You need to be able to sort of be anything and be applicable to anything. Um, and there's, this guy was going, no, nope, I'm pretty happy as I am. Thank you. He's Norwegian. And, um, and he was covered in tattoos, a big sort of punk hair and what have you. And he went on to be incredibly successful in the cabaret world. Captain Frodo, if anyone knows the cast of Le Clique and Le Soiree and people like that. And he went on to be incredibly successful because it, it turned out that even around then, in the kind of the early noughties, people really wanted... They didn't want neutrality. They didn't want people that could be anything. They wanted specific people to be themselves. Yeah. They wanted to go, this is you. This is you. You have a niche. People connect with you. And yeah. it sounds like that's exactly what's going on now with stand-up, particularly in a much wider way than cabaret. It's it's online and it's on Instagram and it's people going, there's a huge number of people out there, get your niche. And to think in 2016, someone was advising you to ignore your niche and not talk about the things that made you special is laughable now and will be preposterous 10 years from now. Yeah. Well, I just think like, you know, I mean, I don't know if I'll still be doing this in 10 years, but like, I just think... Again, that's a thing no one says. (laughs) As as your your temporary agent, I advise you not to say that on the podcast. (laughs) Except that, of course, you're being honest and genuine and that is what people want to hear. Isn't it funny, (laughs) that dynamic? Don't say this. They'll think that. Who's they? I don't know. I just think like I've got I've always felt like I've got a kind of very I've got I think and I think that's what because I've got a very kind of young energy because I'm very energetic I'm not someone who's very kind of calm cool collected comes across as someone who's got this kind of like slick her shit together I've got this kind of mania especially on stage and uh, literally like just having this nervous breakdown especially over domestic life which I never ever thought I had and I come from a really dysfunctional home life and now suddenly I've got this 2.4 children conventional husband type life it's it's this kind of manic like I'm trying to fit into it and I think that is a niche and I think it does work and the more I lean into it the more it's been lovely because whilst it will get you a lot of resistance especially from certain men certain women it does build you a really lovely lovely following of just of just beautiful 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 women a lot of guys who maybe didn't want to come along but then they enjoyed it afterwards and they'll come back again and and that's a following which is so lovely and you're like I just want to build that up and build it up as much as possible um so I'm not really interested in trying to kind of play a a game of pretending to be another thing because it's like it I think it's really soul destroying is there any um is there any ambiguity or kind of questioning that you have about who you are to an audience and who your honest persona is that's one of the things i think that's one of the the ways that you can spot a, a newer comic who's going to do really well is if you can look at them and go ah they're this person and for some people they you know like if if you manage to kind of find your uninhibited uncontrived actual self Early on, and I you think know, it finding, takes finding a, your voice. Yeah, you, it takes a while to find a voice because when I first started, it was very much like, you know, middle class mum, and then you're like, okay, I, I need to, 
maybe focus more because it, you know it's not because I live in a very kind of like middle class mum environment this is the kind of thing I'm talking about and then it was like oh no more focusing on ethnicity and all the rest of it and then I just thought well no because all these things are applicable and I did try and kind of push myself into just one neat identity because I think this industry does fetishize just having one neat tick box you are this and when you're not um and I remember really early on having a conversation with um somebody which I I won't mention who but they were like it would just be so much easier if you wore a headscarf oh my god and they're just like it would just be easier to to push this to push you know you you talking about your ethnicity and I was like are you I came away from that conversation I was just a little bit stunned but I was just like but how would I even explain that like let's say I was like yeah okay cool yeah I'll do that it's then like creating a. Co- I was like, do you realise how offensive it is? Because it's not a costume. Like you can't just put it on, pop out, do your little job, come home and take it off again. It's like no, it's not a costume. Like this is this is <laughs> a belief. And also, I was like, how do I justify that to my children? Like it's like so at home, you having a bottle of wine, but at work. <laughs> and I thought well this is what the industry wants it wants you to really neatly tick a box and then the moment I just thought no I'm mixed heritage I am a mum I don't necessarily fit into any of those neatly and I don't necessarily fit into it and you know also you know from Essex and all the stereotypes that come along with that I do I don't fit into any of them neatly and that's just going to have to be what it is I can't start conforming what I say and how I say it and so the moment I rejected all of that and just and just really kind of let it be it made comedy writing so much easier and performing a lot easier and actually it made my relationship with people watching me so much better so yeah but this is what back the, in the day what <laughs> were the um that's thank you that's fascinating what were the when you mentioned the writing it made the writing easier it made the connection with the audience easier because I think there'll be people listening to this who are still struggling to find their voice or still working on that and it can take years and years and and even non-comedians will might people might be listening to this any kind of creative space kind of going what is it that I do so just talk to me a little bit more about the change in your writing and the change in your connection to an audience that came about when you made that kind of switch I think the moment I stopped going how is this going to be perceived so instead of monitoring what I said and how it would be perceived and how it would be read, the best thing was to go, I'm going to say what I want to say, what I genuinely feel. And the people that get it will have a really honest connection with me. The people that don't get it, they may get annoyed by it. It may just not be their cup of tea, but I'm just not for them. And the moment you get that into your head, you cannot please everyone. And I think when I started, I was trying to please everyone. And the moment you realise that you can't please everyone, but the ones that you do please will genuinely connect with what you're saying because it's real and you're not faking it, then it becomes a real connection rather than this kind of generic, what can I say that will make a whole room go, ha, well, what's better to have a couple of people really howling and some people going, she's just not for me, which I did have in Muswell Hill not so long ago, where <laughs> 80% of the room were just like, she's really gross and horrific. But this small cluster of women were literally crying and afterwards came up to me and they're like, when can we come and see you again? And I was like, OK, I'm going to take the positive. 
Yes, that's great. <laughs> that's better than 10 gigs where you do quite well to the entire room. That is better. But sometimes that happens. You must find that in Edinburgh as well, where you have a gig and you're absolutely storming. You have a great time. And then you go and look at your Instagram. No more followers. And you're like, oh. And then you have a gig, which you think is terrible. And then you just get four people from that gig just message you going, I absolutely love you. When can I come and see you again? And you're like, isn't it weird? Isn't it weird? It's almost maybe they just feel sorry for you. (laughs) In terms of your your... Like we've talked about accessing your true self in terms of kind of the your your persona being honest and what have you. In terms of who that person is that you are honestly reflecting and in terms of how that person was created, you mentioned sort of in passing quite a difficult home life as a kid, as a teenager. Yeah. Growing up in Essex and it was during the time of the Gulf War and having Arab father, you know, it's a lot of kind of race, racial prejudice. Um also, when we came over here, my dad being, you know, uh, uh, you know, coming from a war-torn country and refugee and having kind of constant issues with immigration, things like that just meant that you constantly felt very kind of outcast. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was not particularly a kind of, not an easy, easy time, <laughs> I would say. So you just felt like you were constantly, so it made me quite good at being a chameleon, I've got to say not comedian (laughs) but a chameleon because it meant that you were constantly trying to shapeshift to fit in and duck under the radar and not be noticed as much and is that is that the antithesis of of the kind of true self stuff that we're talking about is that why it's so important to you because you've changed from being someone who felt they had to fit in everywhere and it really someone's gone actually you can be successful at an exciting job by doing exact opposite yeah but even in my personal life, like I remember like when I first got married, I was trying to really be like quite pleasing to like my mother-in-law and I wasn't what she wanted as a, a daughter-in-law, God bless her. She wanted someone who was going to be a housewife and look after her son and put him on the throne that he deserved. And now suddenly she's got this, you know, hairy, loud um, comedian daughter-in-law. And it just made it so much easier the moment, because even in my home life to just turn around and go, do you know what? I wasn't what you wanted and that's okay. I accept that. And, it just suddenly changed everything because instead of trying to please when you suddenly just go, Oh, I'm not what you wanted, but you know, I'm here. Um, it even made those relationships better. So it, it, you mean, it when you say your home life, do you mean with, with your parents? Uh, well with everyone really. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. say, yeah. Parents, yeah. in-laws, all of them, I reckon. Yeah, I don't think we've had that on the show, but I don't think the Gulf War has come up on the show before <laughs> in terms of <laughs> in terms of kind of the, well, you know. The... I mean, because growing up, so I, I mean, you saw it in my show growing up in the 90s and the kind of anti-Arab rhetoric that was really hyped up oh, on God, TV. Oh, yeah, that yeah. was so funny. So, but, but yeah. it meant like going to school where, and, and you don't think about it. Uh, I mean, like I was talking to a lot of my friends and they were like, I, I remember you getting a lot of shit, but I don't remember... I don't remember like seeing it on the media as much. And then when we were going back at like program, like films that we'd watched, like Hot Shots with like Saddam Hussein, and all those things were so big then. And so Arabs were just these comical, disgusting. It was totally acceptable to have a disgusting cartoon Arab as a baddie. Yeah. Yeah, My my teacher in front of the whole class said, in front of the whole class, just went, oh, will you shut up, you dirty Arab? In front of the whole (gasps) class. (laughs) Yeah. Holy fuck. (laughs) My religious studies teacher. (laughs) And and it was just acceptable. I used to get called, my my form tutor called me a lazy Arab. Like, it was just, it was just this, 
way of talking. So you've got a lot of racism at school. And then I had this. So if I went home and told my dad, oh, and one time, like, I did get um, surrounded by a group of boys and they were all like giving me loads of shit about being Arab. So, and stupidly, I another mum saw it and she told my dad and that was the worst thing because my dad was like I will go and kill them so he's like driving around like screaming at them which oh god still to this day I'm like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me but so I used to not tell my dad because my dad would just explode no pun intended but and then you're like that's that because you're just feeding that stereotype like they're all going on about you being savage (laughs) and then you're rocking up at school and threatening to kill everyone (laughs) so you're kind of trying to juggle this world of like i don't want like because my dad he's the sweetest loveliest man but he's very loud and very expressive and so if and obviously you know if someone's giving his kid shit he's going to defend his kid but it was it was just treading those boards really trying to really kind of and so you'd almost like try and anglicize yourself as much as possible at school and then when you come home you know you want to kind of because my dad used to always go on about oh you're losing your roots you're losing what you are so then you try and kind of arab yourself more and it was just yeah just you know so you become a bit of a chameleon side note have you <laughs> talked about that dad threatening to kill people thing on stage because that is very no, funny is it <laughs> yeah it's really funny yeah <laughs> it's really it's really funny it's potentially fun. i mean it's obviously rooted in something awful and difficult for you which is why i'm into it as a comic but it's also funny i think as a punter like that that feels like when i think any time a comedian says this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me a little light goes on in my head like presumably there's a show in that <laughs> do you know what I mean? presumably there's a bit oh god no i haven't talked about it on stage maybe because i, I think I think the stuff that you mentioned, like you, you handled the stuff that you just said to me there, that, that, you know, the idea of your heritage and being picked on for it and the, the cultural context of it, a very funny bit in your show with these are all the versions, these are all the made up yeah. Arab countries that various TV shows have created so that they can have terrorists from there and, you know, so yeah. that Captain America can defeat them yeah. and the rest of it been very funny and really for me just a real a genuine kind of scales falling from my eyes moment of going oh god yeah I'd always thought like as a teenager reading comics I'd be like oh that's clever they've made up a place but really from your perspective it's like no they haven't made it up it's they've got they've deliberately (laughs) contrived a place based on somewhere I'm from that's astonishing yeah like I can't believe at the time I didn't go fucking hell it was just one of those but I didn't as a kid I just accepted it I just accept, but it was with, it's with that, with, with loads of things. Like, I mean, you do it even from, it's so weird how, how we develop and grow because even I started um, rewatching Sex and the City the other day, just out of interest because me and Lily Phillips were talking about it. And I was like, oh my God, I watched this in the nineties growing up going and, and not questioning any of it. And then you watch it again and you're like, my God, this is so problematic. It's just Mm. so self-loathing misogyny, just creating this kind of absolute hatred towards women if they're not validated by men. So it's all these things you don't notice at the time, but when you look back on it, you're like, God, that's not okay. (laughs) Hilarious fat moniker on Friends. That's the one that always sticks out to me. Like she wore a fat suit to be a funny fat person. But also that no one would sleep with her because she was fat. And she's yeah. not even really that fat. Yeah. She's kind of just this chubby girl. And they're like, so obviously no one would shag her ever because she's gross and disgusting and fat. And you're like. <laughs> so with your, with, so what I was going to say was in, in your show, you deal with the kind of relationship aspects of your mum and your dad. And, you know, you deal lightly with some of that stuff that now I'm sort of finding out is actually there was a bit more kind of 
guts to it and a bit more pain to it, I suppose. Does that strike you as... Is there any part of your comic's mind that is going, I could get deeper into that? That might be an opportunity to get kind of deeper, more powerful stuff out of it. Or are you or When they're are dead, content? I will go yeah, to right. town on it. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I often think that. I often, I've said this on the show before. I'm in awe of people who can really get stuck into their mum when she's still alive. I'm like, are you kidding? What? I mean, I can joke, I can joke about my dad as much. Like, my dad does not care. Like, people... I remember my sister coming to watch my show and she was just like, does dad know that you're talking about him walking around with his ball bags hanging out? Of his pants. And I was like, that doesn't care. Because to dad, that's like, yeah, I don't give a shit. That happened. You know, a harrowing first introduction to Neil. But, you know, is what it is. But if I was to get into their relationship, I think yeah. they would both find that incredibly uncomfortable. And I wouldn't want to do, I wouldn't want to say anything where it's going to make them go, oh, you know, you don't want to make people yeah. feel, I don't know. But yeah, yeah it's. So, I mean, is that that's the thing? Is it as a comic, as a as a creative person, is that inhibition or is it just respect for the people that you don't want to? I always screw think because people say to me, because people have said to my husband, they're like, um, "Are you okay with how she talks on stage about you?" Or I even had an interview recently where they were saying, "But how are your children going to feel when they grow up and they hear the things that you say about them?" And inherently, anyone who you have a very very comfortable relationship with are the things and the people that you can talk about on stage the people that you don't have a comfortable relationship with like people that you're afraid to hurt you can't talk about them on stage so I think there's like for example when you hear I don't know like Dara Brian talking about you know we put all the effort into our daughter because our son's a lot more stupid I can completely completely get where he's coming from and you know that there is a relationship in that household that has allowed and that boy does not feel that at all he knows yeah. that there is a running joke there that the family and the context are completely correct. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it on stage. Anyone yeah. who you mock on stage, you have a really solid relationship with. And my kids know what I say on stage. And they say to me as well, I mean, we'll sat around. If they do something funny, they'll turn around. They'll go, Mum, can you not say that? Like, I know you're laughing now, but don't say that. And I'll say, OK, fine. Or they'll turn around and go, sure. no, that, that's OK. Like my son's like, you can do the penis high five. That's fine. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but don't do, you know, whatever. See, I'm sitting here, I'm not squirming, but I am asking myself questions about, like, this is a thing. My kids are three and seven, nearly four and six, and they're definitely getting to the stage. My son did a gig. My son did a gig. He did. Uh, he writes one-liners, and he did seven or eight of his one-liners to, like, 400 people at Camp Festival. It was fantastic. Oh, I want I will, my kids to do stand-up. Well, do you know what? It was gr The great thing about it was that he simultaneously had a really fun experience and... A proud dad, uh, one of the best bits was that um, well-meaning parents were going, Ray, at his punchlines. And I was like, don't do that off stage in the wings. And then they stopped doing that because they started laughing. So I was like, yes, smash the gig, great. But also he had an incredibly level-headed kind of, do you want to do it again? Yeah, no, not really. Like, oh, that's the best. <laughs> yeah, he had a wonderful experience. Legend. And it's also, I've inoculated him against becoming a comedian. So that's quite satisfying. But um, what I was going to say was, I'm not sure of where my kind of, I know where my loyalties lie, but I've been telling jokes about him since he was in the womb. 
and he knows that I've talked about him on stage and he, I've done some of the stuff in front of him at a Comedy for Kids gig, but not all of the stuff. No. And I'm like, you know, I, I, don't, I know that when he's an adult, if he looks back on the stuff as an adult and some of it's available online and will be forever, I'm sure that he'll be fine with it. But if he were to look back on it when he's like 10 or someone... I mean, I might need to have a sort of a showing with him before a friend of his can find something online and show it to him in the playground. See, I'm not worried about them seeing the stuff that I've said because they'll know that I think my daughter will be mortified... My my kids will be mortified that I've done any of it. And I think I've been quite... Like, they know that I joke about how much, you know, I hate being a mum and my kids drive me mad, so they know all that. But I think what will upset them more so that I'm worried about is the comments... That's what will upset yeah. them. So that's what I'm trying to pre-warn them about. Because yeah, their mates right. have seen, they have gone and Googled me and they've gone, your mum talked about her vagina. Your mum swore. Your mum says that, you know, um, she just wishes that you and dad and stuff were all just friends and not related. And my daughter's like, yeah, that's I know a, all that. It's a great bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter's like, I know all that. She says, it, like, this is a joke at home. But I, I keep saying to her, it's really important that whenever you see something about me online, you don't read underneath because this is what... And I've had to explain to her what trolls are and that they're people oh. who are just really sad and sometimes they may just hate you and that's okay, but we just don't read them because if you read anything, you're giving it life. So don't read it. It's really important um, because I don't and I'm, you know, I've, I know certain things, but like, for example, people went and wrote stuff like my kids should be taken away from me and things like that. And that I think would mess with their head a little bit to know that people think that your mum's like this absolute animal. That's quite hard, I think. But um, so that's more what I'm worried about rather than the content itself. I mean, they know that you're, I mean, you know. They they know who you are, and I don't think I don't think anything you say. I mean, I've seen your stand up. I can't imagine your kids. It's like I saw I did a gig with um, Andy Askins and his daughter. Oh yeah, yeah. And she and I and I was talking to her, and, and she was going, "Yeah, no, you just get totally used to it." Because I was like, as someone who's got, and she's now doing stand up, and she said, "Oh God, Dad would say stuff on stage like he used to do jokes about um, wanting to murder my mum, uh, all these jokes." And she said, "But we just grew up with it, and because he would joke about it at home, we just knew the context. It never phased us. Never phased us." Um, I was talking to Shappy as well because obviously her little girl, and she's just like, "Yeah, if I felt like anything was too far with my kids, I probably would just remove it." But I do think the the worst thing for them would be to to look at what other people say about you. But yeah. We have to cross that bridge when we come to it. Soapbox opportunity. Now, Estaminito, what are you doing with the show? Are you touring the show? No. Are you not? Shall no. I take that question out? <laughs> I'm not I assumed you'd be touring the show. Why aren't well, you touring the show? Um, You've done the Apollo. You've done a great Edinburgh. Why aren't you touring the show? I don't know. I kind of felt like I'd done it. So I've done, I, I did the show at so many festivals. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm doing a new, I'm, I'm trying to write a new show as we speak. I'm doing a work in progress on the 20th of October. And so great. far I have a... Crack on, that's great. Yeah, but so far great. I have a title. So if anyone on. can... Mm, oh, no, you don't want to tell us. No um, need to tell us your title this yeah, no, But no. I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's going to be about anger and it's going to be very ranty. But that's as far as that's as far as I've got. So if anyone wants to come to Woolwich Works on the twentieth of October and help me write yeah. a show, please do. Come come sit in the audience and just say to me, Yeah, that's funny, or no, that's a piece of shit, and that would be amazing. 
How do you do that? Do you write stuff down longhand on a printer? You know, do you print out a thing? Do you scribble in a notebook? Do you just write six words on your hand? What's the very beginning of the write a new show process? So far, it's just jotting down ideas. So it's just jotting down ideas and I'm trying to kind of get it into some kind of linear form. At this stage already? Yeah. Like I wouldn't even know if I had anything at this stage. I don't think I do have anything. Have I got anything at all? Like even that you've got, are you imposing the theme of like anger on the process because you want to talk about anger or have you got one or two bits that are about anger and you've gone like, oh, maybe this show's about anger. No, I've literally decided I want to do something about anger and I've got nothing about anger. Oh no, I think I've (laughs) got, I think I've got one thing. I think I've got one thing. I can't remember what it is, but I've got one thing, I'm sure. And the, and the decision to do a show about anger is based on. Just things that piss me off. And yeah, also that okay. anger is still not considered a very kind of acceptable emotion for a woman to have. Uh, so if you're an okay. angry woman, it's a really kind of ugly, ugly image, isn't it? So it's just little things that piss me off. So it's nothing kind of big, um, but it is literally just a, a, a rant. That's what I want yeah. it to be. Yes. So, But the kernel of the idea is you think a thing and you're like, I'm going to write around this thing that I think. Yes. And yes. construct it. And is yes. that because that's what obviously what you did with Crusade and with hashtag not all men. Well, with Crusade, that's like, that's... it's just all my material and just shoved into an hour. And with hashtag yeah, not all okay. men, it started out like a book and then I had to make it funny. So when I first did it, there was just no jokes. It was like, this is the structure. And so people were okay. just watching it like, OK, so that's a nice long story. And Do then you know, I to... I've never I've never written a show like that. I've always been intrigued by that going. These are the all of the opinions and none of them are funny. Yeah. Like I do that in stages. I do it sort of piecemeal. Yeah. When I first wrote my when I first wrote Hashtag Not All Men, it was like, well, this is a nice book. <laughs> I think that's a good idea because that stops you just coming up with whiffle. That makes sure at least whiffle. you mean everything that you say. <laughs> that's a really good word. You just start off going. <laughs> and what you just a think load yourself, of whiffle. In September and October, I'm going to write a short book and yeah. it's going to be short and not well written, but honest. And then I'll start yeah. putting jokes in it. Yeah. So you've got to find the funnies. And I think you can only find the funnies when you rant on stage. Ah, go- yes. I Okay. So you're ranting on stage, meaning a thing, audience are there, super brain activated, but also you're talking about something you care about. Yeah. And then they laugh and you go, are you recording them? Are you making a mental note or are you stopping and saying to them, oh, you laughed, you like that bit? Yeah. Let's do, do that more. Do a little tick on my, on yeah. my notebook. <laughs> Worked. And then Very other good. bits, you're like, okay, you hate that and that's absolutely fine. How many, how many goes do you give a bit before you give up? I know you're supposed to keep giving goes. I don't. Because I think one, it naturally... One try. Yeah, I think it naturally develops anyway. I think you might have a bit that absolutely smashes it first time you say it and then you say it again and it never, ever works again. So you've just got a kind of like... I, I mean, and also there are jokes now that I've been... Something went out on Comedy Central online the other day that I did and I was like, oh my God, that's so shit. And then I was like, I still do that routine, but I've changed the wording. I've changed how it's delivered. But at the time I was like, oh, I've just written this bit and it's really funny. And it's not. It's like, oh, no, it's a lot better now. But obviously it's gone out now. But yeah, so I think things naturally develop, don't they? And they kind of refine. What things do you struggle with in in your comedy practice? What like what what do you see other people do and think, oh, Christ, I wish I could do that. Oh, be funny. You know, you see people at New Material Nights and just whatever they say is funny. I never do. I never get that. I literally, I all my New Material people are just like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
So all my, I can't do that thing of I'm just going to write a list of loads of stuff and then go to a new material night and 90% of it will get laughs. I can't do that. I have to just literally take one joke and develop it at a time and just put it into my old set and that, that develops. So my set will change so slowly. You know, you see people and you see them like six months later and their whole set's completely different. I can't do that. I have a new chunk that's in there. And then come six months, there'll be another new chunk added on top of that. So if you compare my my set now to a year ago, there's a lot of difference. But my God, it takes a whole year for my 20 minutes club set to change. I think it's a good way of doing it. I've never really done it like that. But I think I've I've done a lot of... I'll open strong and I'll close strong. And in the middle, I'll take a lot of risks. And it's helped me develop oh, as a writer in some ways. But I in other ways, that. I think it's made me less reliable. As a, no, as I wish a I could act. do that. I wish I could do that. But I just can't. I just don't have the, I don't have the, I don't know if it's the confidence or I'm not articulate enough. But yeah, I just, yeah. Where can we find you online? What is your preferred call to action, Estimanito? How can if we? Could, uh, if you is can, it Instagram? Instagram and Twitter are the best ones. Okay. I think I'm on TikTok, but it's not a lot going on there. <laughs> I don't really get it. I'm, I, alongside that I if misogynistic we'll man. <laughs> yeah, right. I wonder if we'll look back at this in 10 years ago, because you never know which things are going to pop or keep going or what have you. But uh, I think I'm on Twitter. That's the sort of thing. <laughs> years from now. Yeah. Are you happy? Uh, I think so. I think so. I don't really fully, um, I think I've been happy for quite a while. I mean, if you'd asked me years and years ago, I probably would have said no, because I want more or I want this to change and the rest of it. I do feel like I'm probably the most content I could ever be. So I don't think there's anything I'm kind of longing for. Just more babies in my life would be good, but that's not going to happen. So just got to push harder for my daughter to get pregnant ASAP. (laughs) Thanks, Esther. Thanks, Stuart. So that was Esther Minito. She has just such relatable stuff. And I don't know, I don't mean relatable to sound negative. It doesn't sound negative, does it? But I used to get really annoyed when people used to call me slick and people go, oh, I don't mean it in a bad way. Who knows what gets up people's noses? But her stuff is relatable, not in the sense that it's kind of blah, but in the sense that everybody can cling on to it because she's just very, very good at zooming in on those little uh, those little interactions, those little qualities uh, of the of the human dynamic and uh, enlarging them for comic effect, which, let's face it, is a big part of the job. So find out more about Esther at estherminito.co.uk. You can follow her on Twitter at Esther underscore Manito. Um, but I see she got there first on Instagram where she is Esther Manito. So uh, find out more about her. You can find out everything that I'm doing by going to my link tree, which is linktree.ee slash Stuart Goldsmith, or visit comedianscomedian.com or indeed stuartgoldsmith.com. In both of those places, you can join the mailing list. Uh, and I sporadically, I'm kind of almost once a month, and as someone said recently, it's quite nice that there's no rhyme or reason to it because then it's a nice surprise. <laughs> well, at least um, you know that you're not going to get harangued by my mail outs, but they are quite fun. Um, I have just, for editing reasons, had cause to listen back to some of this. And I've realised that even though to my ears in the real world, my nose doesn't sound that bunged up, to you it does. And it's awful. So I'm not going to post amble at you. I'm sorry. I'm just feeling too heady to do it. 
Um, besides, I started this recording several prime ministers ago, and uh, who knows where we are now by the time you get to listen to it. No post-amble today. I will speak to you next week. Who's in the bag? Oh, we've got some good people in the bag. Uh, won't tell you because they're not in the bag yet, but they're in the diary. So there's two absolute belters coming up soon. And then I'm back on the booking mission. So you can look forward to... Oh, I'm looking down the list now. Dare I? Nope, I'm going to keep still. So uh, before we say goodbye, thank you uh, once again to Esther. Thank you for listening, sharing, downloading, recommending the show to people and uh, putting uh, uh, reviews of it up wherever you see fit. And don't, don't just put them up, but like go to platforms that solicit reviews and review the show positively, I hope. I mean, Christ knows. I mean, I'm awful and cringy and very nasal today. So maybe just get stuck right into me. Um, so uh, thank you to producer Nathan. Thank you to Moz for doing the logging. Rob Smouton did the music and this podcast exists entirely for Brett Goldstein. We've got to cheer the little fella up somehow. Bye for now. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.